0: What's stopping you, you, you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? one 833 ewtn
1: I don't understand why I have to earn salvation.
0: 1-833-288-3986
1: What's stopping you? Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? You, 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 you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. On the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey, everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. It's the program for our non Catholic brothers and sisters. Maybe you're just discovering EWTN for the first time, and uh, here we are in the new year, and you're thinking, you know, this is a Catholic radio station. I've got a couple of questions about the Catholic faith that I'd, I'd love to get answered. We're here for you. Here's our phone number 833 288 EWTN. That's 833 833- 2883986. If you're listening outside of uh, North America, please dial 1 and then 2052712985. And of course you can always uh, send us an email or uh, a text or whatever. Uh, the address for the email is CTC at ewtn.com CTC at EWTN.com Charles Beery is our producer Matt Kabinsky is our phone screener Jeff Burson handles social media for us if you want to ask a question via YouTube or Facebook well guess what we're streaming on both, both platforms right now just put your question in the comments box. Jeff will see that. He'll shoot it to us here in Studio 1 and hopefully we can answer your question on uh, today's program. I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? Very well. How are you my friend? Oh, I'm doing decent. Thank you. May remember at the end of the show yesterday there was a question via via YouTube and a question from Facebook that we did not get here's a pen for you buddy oh, thank you. there on. you go uh, that we could not get to yesterday cuz uh, here comes the music clock ran out had to get out of here so we've held we've held those both of them over for you for today. Hopefully, uh, Jeremy in Fort Worth is listening. His question came to us from YouTube yesterday. Here's what Jeremy had to say. I heard a Protestant pastor try to say that the cleansing sacrifice for lepers in Leviticus 14 prefigures penal substitutionary atonement. How would you respond to that?
2: Yeah, I appreciate the question. So for the sake of the listeners, let's define our terms. Okay. Okay. Uh, Penal substitutionary atonement refers to the Calvinist theory about what happened on the cross when Jesus died. And in the Calvinist view, what happened is that God was wrathful at humanity and that God was required by some exigency of his own nature necessarily to punish sin. That it somehow is a metaphysical impossibility for God not to punish sin. This is, again, the Calvinist view. Uh, he's constrained to punish sin, and yet he doesn't want to. So God is sort of at conflict within himself, according to the Calvinist view. Mm-hmm. And uh, he wants to forgive humanity, but he's required by uh, his own law of divine justice to f- to punish sin. So what he comes up with instead is this idea that he will punish Jesus for the sins of humanity. He will impute the guilt of humanity to Christ, and Jesus gets punished on our behalf, and that he then imputes the righteousness of Christ to believers, and so that they are acquitted for Jesus' sake. So quite literally, in the Calvinist scheme, God punishes the innocent in order to acquit the guilty. Now, right off the bat, the Catholic hears that and recoils in horror at the thought that God would do something so unjust, because if you ever met a judge— that who, whose modus operandi was to punish the innocent and acquit the guilty, we would look to impeach that judge as fast as possible. Yeah. That's the definition of injustice. But that is, that is in fact, how Calvinists understand the death of Christ. Now, it's, it's odd that they do. I mean, there's reasons historically that they do. But there is no biblical warrant for that idea. Uh, when the atonement of the death of Christ is discussed in the New Testament, every time it's talked about— it's presented as a sacrifice of atonement. Jesus, St. Paul says in Romans 3 precisely that, that Jesus died as a sacrifice of atonement. And so the Old Testament sacrificial system does give us the model for understanding what took place on Calvary. And whether you're talking about cleansing rituals or the various sacrificial rituals uh, outlined in Leviticus and the rest of the Pentateuch, uh, the mechanism is always the same, namely that the worshiper brings something of value— that he offers up in token of reparation or to make satisfaction or to give thanks or as a memorial or for whatever mm-hmm. the purpose of the sacrifice is. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, God accepts that as a, as a pleasing offering and shows mercy and kindness to the one making the offering. What is absolutely not going on in Old Testament sacrifice is that God is expiating his wrath upon the sacrificial victim. You know, whether that be a sheep or a goat or a ram or a bull, or, or sometimes even uh, agricultural produce like, you know, cakes of bread and vegetables. You know, it's not like God is standing there going, man, I can't wait to take it out on that banana. You know? <laughs> um, that's not how it works. And, and this is really evident in the narratives surrounding sacrifice. So you look at a passage like 2 Samuel 12, or is it 24? I forget which one. When uh, 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 David has to offer a sacrifice and one of the Israelites offers to give him uh, some of his own herd to offer, and David says, no, I'm going to pay you for the animal, the sacrificial victim, because I refuse to offer the Lord a sacrifice that costs me nothing. It's, the, it's, that's, it's the, precisely the element of sacrificial giving on the part of the worshiper wherein the value of the sacrifice consists. God says explicitly, I, I take no pleasure in the death of goats and bulls. What I want is a contrite heart. That's what I won't despise. And the 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 death of the animal is a token— of what the worshipper is willing to give up for the honor of god it's not that god is punishing an irrational animal now specifically when we get into the issue of the purification offerings uh there i think your your protestant pastor friend is just way off base Uh, and in fact i think the symbolism is entirely the other way right in the old covenant in order to offer any kind of sacrifice or to appear in the temple or in uh, you know whatever with the people of god a person had to be in a state of ritual purity. Not moral purity, but ritual purity. And if they were ritually impure, there they they were purification rites they had to undergo to be moved from the state of impurity to ritual purity, and those often involve sacrifice. Well, the New Testament tells us explicitly how that applies to our case. Rather than an external or ritual purity, we're now called to have an interior purity. St. Paul, for example, would write in Second uh, Corinthians 7, Purify yourselves of everything that contaminates flesh or spirit, out of reverence for God. And so, uh, this is not this is not a purification that is acquired by imputation. Uh, you know, the imputing of Christ's righteousness to us. This is very much a purification that is achieved through moral effort. Asceticism and the renunciation of the life of sin. So I, I think there's absolutely no warrant for the claim of your Calvinist pastor,
1: Jeremy and Ford Worth. Uh, we hope. Uh, well, first of all, we hope you got to hear this message, and then uh, hope that's helpful for you. In a moment, we'll be right back with lots more. Call to Communion. It's called to Communion with Dr. David Anders here on EWTN Radio. Our phone number is eight three three. 288 ewtn I was going to say our phone number, and they're available right now. 833 288 3986 We have six lines open waiting for you. 833 833- 2883986 we're going to get to the phones in just a moment here let me tell you about something wonderful now available from EWTN's religious catalog and I can uh, certainly speak about this this is very important we are offering great christmas items including beautiful christmas cards if you haven't sent out your christmas cards yet and I can think of one particular family that hasn't <clears throat> uh, but you uh, if you have sent out your cards Well, you may want to stock up for next year. Now, one particular set that is being offered from a catalog features the arrival of Jesus in the stable with the Blessed Virgin Mary, St. Joseph, and some visiting shepherds. Inside the card is the sentiment, may this Christmas season bring you much joy and happiness. Now, it also says from Luke 2.15, The shepherds said to one another, Let us go then to Bethlehem to see this thing that has taken place. These are gorgeous cards. Each deluxe box includes 15 cards and 16 gold foil lined envelopes. It's good to have that spare envelope, isn't it? Visit EWTNRC.com for other styles and Christmas items. Do check it out, EWTNRC.com. All right, before we go back to the phones at 833-288-EWTN, here's the other uh, social media question we couldn't get to yesterday, and this is from Josie, who was listening yesterday on Facebook. And she says, with epiphany approaching, can you please explain why some Catholics have an epiphany chalk blessing of their homes? You know what we're talking about I here? do,
2: exactly. Um, it is a way of invoking the intercession of the three wise men.
1: And honestly
2: I cannot tell you the origin of the practice. I know that it is a traditional one and yeah. and I I've, I've been known to chalk up my own house in in, uh, in years too. past. Uh, but it's a, it's specifically an invocation of the intercession of those of those characters of yeah. uh, of the wise men. Yeah.
1: Yeah, there's, uh, you know, the year, also the names of the three wise men. That's right. Uh, It's a a beautiful practice, and I think there's some prayers and maybe even a song that goes with it. So there you go, Josie. Uh, Thanks so much uh, for your question via Facebook. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN, beginning with Lori in Wisconsin, listening on the EWTN app. Lori, Happy New Year. What's on your mind today?
0: Happy New Year to you too. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, I am a convert um, to the Catholic Church from being a Lutheran all my life. And some of my family, of course, is still Lutheran. And they go to um, St. Paul Lutheran Church. And wasn't St. Paul a Catholic? Yeah,
2: thanks. I really appreciate the question. So, to understand <clears throat> the answer to this question, you have to grasp. That that traditional Protestantism, and I'm I'm talking here about the uh, the mainline denominations that came out of the 16th century, like like the Lutherans, like the Presbyterians, like the Episcopalians. Uh, h- at least in their origins, those communities understood themselves to be the one holy, catholic, and apostolic Church without qualification, and in and in the the most robust sense possible. Mm. So the 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 propaganda of the Reformation was not, hey, we're going to break away from the Catholic Church and start a new movement. That, 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 that would not have flown at all in the 16th century. Instead, what they claimed was, we are the ones that are in continuity with the Catholic tradition, and the Romanists, the Papists as they understood them, are the innovative party, right? See, they they tried to make the claim that what they were doing was essentially sweeping away a few centuries of accretions of barnacles that had come to cling to the bark of Saint Peter, if you will, and that they, the reformers, were with were were those who truly had apostolic succession, truly had the doctrine of the apostles and the practice and the faith of the early church, and uh, and the Pope and his minions were just uh, usurpers that had come and and uh, and confused things. So, wow. so they would have had, they would absolutely have embraced the notion huh. that uh, that Saint Paul was was one of them, and that they were Catholic, you know, in a, in a capital C kind of way, which is why uh, uh, traditional mainline Protestant denominations continue to recite the Nicene Creed and the Apostle Creed and profess their faith in the one holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. They just think that that Church uh, is best represented by their own communion rather than, as they would call, you know, the Papists, the Romanists, you know, the party of the Antichrist. Now we Catholics obviously have a different interpretation of Christian history.
1: Yes, for sure. Lori, is that helpful for you?
0: Um, yeah, but I'm just wondering: aren't all saints really they're they're canonized by Catholics, right?
2: Sure, absolutely. You're absolutely right. Um, but but again, traditional Protestants understand themselves to be Catholic now we don't agree with them in that judgment but you know so this is a this is a dis- the dispute between traditional protestants and catholics is a dispute over who gets to claim the title catholic
1: hmm and in fact
2: i have a polemical book on my shelf by a protestant attacking the catholic church it's it's an anti-catholic book and the title of the book is catholic but not roman wow you know and so that that's very much a part of protestant ideology hey we're the real catholics not you not you <laughs>
1: you know Papist Catholics. Yeah, wow. Lori, thanks so much for your call. That opens up a line for you at 833 288 EWTN. That's 833 288 3986. It's called Communion with Dr. David Andrews here on this uh, Thursday afternoon on EWTN. Right here in Birmingham, David, on uh, Highway 119, there is a church called St. Francis of Assisi. That's right. And It's not a Catholic church. It's not a Catholic church. I know. I've driven past it many times. There you go. It's a pretty church, though, I must add. Very pretty. Uh, Here's an email now from Marie who says, Does sin make my prayer ineffective? And if I'm not in a state of grace, is my prayer worth nothing?
2: Yeah. um, Ineffective? No. Less effective? Yes. Uh, So the teaching of St. James from his epistle is that the prayer of a righteous man avails much is very effective. And James addresses specifically the case of people who have unanswered prayers, and he says, well, your prayers are not getting answered because you ask with wrong motives to spend what you get on your pleasures. And so uh, Catholic tradition and sacred scripture do indicate that uh, that the quality of our moral lives has an effect on the efficacy of our prayers. You know, look at uh, the ending of the book of Job. God tells Job's companions, I'm not real happy with you guys, so I will not hear your prayers or, or, or acknowledge your offerings. But if you get my servant Job to pray for you, I'll listen to him. Mm. Right, the prayer of a righteous man can avail not only for himself but in intercession for others. But we would not say that that the prayer of an unrighteous man has no effect, because then we would never be able to leave the state of unrighteousness. Right, I mean that that first prayer for grace and and uh, uh, and and forgiveness is necessarily from the state of sin, from the state of mortal sin. If I'm, I'm, you know, uh, washed out in the gutter and I say, okay, God, I've had enough of listening to me. I'm going to start listening to you now. Please forgive me and help me back on the path. I sure hope that God would answer that prayer. And, of course, the Church teaches that he does. Um, And his grace, in fact, enables that prayer. So God, something we call actual grace, God will come and move the heart of the sinner To request sanctifying grace, the kind of grace that would purify his soul and restore him to the state of righteousness. So God does answer the prayers of sinners, particularly the prayer for grace and forgiveness. But if you're talking about the faith that moves mountains, yeah, then then righteousness definitely plays a role. And I think one of the reasons for that is the, is the, the more your life is characterized by holiness, the more your prayer reflects the true will of God. You know, not many of the saints prayed, say, for a new Ferrari or to win the lottery
1: because that's not what their priorities were. <laughs> sure. Appreciate that. Marie, thanks so much uh, for your email. Calls are uh, coming in, but not all that quick. And we're looking for your call at 833. 833- 288 ewtn If you have a question for Dr. David Anders on this beautiful, uh, chilly Thursday afternoon, 833-288-3986. Call to communion here on EWTN Radio. Here's a question now from Carol, in, uh, and this actually came in yesterday, and she says, in the gospel reading today, which would have been yesterday, Wednesday, twice John the Baptist says he did not know Jesus well jesus was his cousin and of course he met jesus while in the tomb or while in the womb rather and probably over the years please explain this also i need a book or something explaining the parables of jesus do you have any suggestions and both of those are from carol
2: um yes yes uh so in terms of john the baptist um john of course knows christ but john wavers he has doubts You know, in particular, we we learn that when John was put in prison, then he sends some representatives to Jesus and asks, are you the one that we were expected, or should we wait for someone else? Now, he, he started out saying, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, can you think of anything that might have led him to waver between the beginning of John's ministry and the end, where he might have begun to have second thoughts about whether Jesus was really the Messiah? How about the fact that John landed in prison? I mean, how many of us, when we hit really, really hard times, begin to waver and doubt God's plan for our lives? That's a very natural response. Okay. Um, in terms of books about the parables, I've got one in the back of my head, but if you if you let me come back to that in just a couple minutes, I got a I got to pull up the, the 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 author's name has escaped me for just a second, and I'll I'll be with you in a minute on that one.
1: Carol, thanks so much uh, for your email. Keep listening. We'll uh, get that to you as uh, quickly as we can question here from Pierre watching us on YouTube this afternoon hi Dr. Anders as a New year's resolution I'm dedicating to reading Saint Augustine where to start can you give me some advice on a good chronology Thanks many blessings Pierre from the Netherlands
2: um, yeah thanks so I, I wouldn't necessarily read Augustine chronologically all right um, I, I think you re- the first book everyone should read by Augustine must of necessity be uh, the Confessions. Oh, yeah. That's where you have to start, okay? Now, um, the Confessions will give you a narrative of Augustine's life up to the point of his conversion. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, The best biography about Augustine is by Peter Brown, and it is simply entitled Augustine of Hippo. It is a a classic work of historiography and of uh, ancient biography by a modern scholar, and I strongly recommend it to get a, a really robust chronological view of Augustine's life and development. So Augustine of Hippo by Peter Brown, the Confessions by Augustine himself. Now, if uh, most scholars divide Augustine into three time periods. They talk about the early Augustine, the middle Augustine, and the late Augustine. And Augustine had significant theological development over that time, mm. so much so that he wrote a book in... It, towards the end of his life, called the Retractions, where he goes back and comments on books that he had written as a younger man, and he says, "This is where I got it right, and this is where I got it wrong." And he <laughs> retracts things, you know, opinions that mm. he previously had that, yeah. he, that he walked, well, he walked back. Um, but uh, uh, the Augustine's book. Let me, let me give you some selections from each of the periods. Okay. My favorite work of Augustine's from the early period would be On True Religion, De Vera Religione. Um, uh, the, my favorite Augustine from the middle period would probably be On uh, Christian Doctrine, which is his, uh, his work of biblical hermeneutics. Mm-hmm. Um, clearly, the most celebrated work from the late period would be <clears throat> The City of God. The City of God is a massive, unwieldy, and difficult text to wade all the way through. Whether you want to tackle the entirety of The City of God, I don't know. Um, if you want something much shorter— and accessible, in particular from the anti-Pelagian polemic, which is the most significant work that he did in that period outside the city of God, then I would try uh, De Spiritu et Litera, On the
1: Spirit and the Letter. Okay. And, of course, the Confessions would be in that first section. No, it's in the middle section.
2: Is it really? Yeah, yeah, definitely.
1: Very good. And, uh, Pierre, thanks for listening to us in the Netherlands. We're delighted to hear from you.
2: And I I I remembered the the title of the parable book. Okay, okay. Um, It's actually not by a Catholic author, it's by a Jewish author, um, uh, Amy Jill Levin, uh, who's a professor of New Testament at Vanderbilt University, and the title of the book is Short Stories by Jesus the Enigmatic Parables of a Controversial Rabbi, uh-huh. which sets the parables of Jesus within their um, within their Second Temple Jewish context.
1: I love the title. That's fantastic. Appreciate that, and uh, thank you so much. It is called a communion here on EWTN. Tyler is a first-time caller in Providence, Rhode Island, uh, watching us today on YouTube. Hey, Tyler, what's on your mind today?
0: Uh, so I just had a question about, you know, Catholic
2: devotionals. I've heard about a bunch of them, and some of them come with promises, and I'm not really sure
0: what they are, and sometimes they sound a little bit, I think, what's been described as maybe superstitious. So I'm just hope, hoping for some guidance or some explanation of what these things are.
2: Yeah, thank you. I really appreciate the question. So it's important to recognize the the purpose of exterior religious ritual of any kind, whether we're talking about postures that we take during the liturgy, whether we talk about uh, the performance of uh, of traditional devotions, whatever they might be. Uh-huh. The purpose of such exercises is to represent outwardly by our words and actions and gestures, the transformations that we hope to obtain inwardly, this the state of mind, the disposition of heart, that is the goal of Catholic life. And ultimately, that's the life of charity characterized by virtue. and And so uh, whatever approach we take to devotions, we have to keep that end in view. And there is a danger, there is a definite danger, that the Catholic approach the externals of religious life, whether they be devotions or sacraments or liturgy, with the view that if I perform the mechanical act, then ipso facto I will reap the spiritual benefit. And that view is, that is the essence of superstition. And the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 2111, Mm -hmm. condemns it. If we we think that some maintenance of religious ritual— will will put us in right stead with god just by the mere mechanical performance and not accompanied by the proper disposition then then we're fooling ourselves <clears throat> and so once you have that in view then your your selection criteria uh is i think much simpler you don't you don't start with hey what is the supernatural promise that accompanies this devotion as much as you would begin with which of these speaks to me affectively or intellectually in a way that I can relate to, right? And for some, you know, that might be the rosary. We can talk more about this after the break if you want, but here comes the music. I got to shut this down.
1: Tyler, thanks so much for your call. We'll also talk with Marcy near Panama City. Lines are open for you at 833-288-EWTN. Call now. It's called a Communion on this Thursday afternoon here on EWTN Radio. We do have a couple of lines open at 833-288-EWTN. If you've got a question for Dr. David Anders, or perhaps you'd like to tell us what is stopping you from becoming a Catholic, in any event, the phone number is the same, 833-288-EWTN. Hey, congratulations going out to another member of the EWTN Radio family, Totus tuus Catholic radio they are in Gainesville Georgia wonderful people there celebrating eight years with us this week congratulations to Mark Peffer Carol Bush and everybody at WmkP from your friends here at ewTN radio all right let's go to uh, Marcy near Panama City and uh, listening on Sirius XM channel 130. Marcy uh, happy New Year to you what's on your mind today? Oh, happy New
0: Year um, I have a problem with, um, you know, everybody's going through this phase of being spiritual but not religious. Well, I've got a friend that is saying that he believes in Jesus Christ, he believes in God, reads the Bible, but he doesn't believe in organized religion. And he even denies the fact that Christianity is actually considered a religion. And it's almost a loop of insanity that we keep going around. And I'm trying to figure out how to talk to him about this. But he is definitely against the Catholic churches view things, because they keep going back to the pre-scandals and the hypocrisies and things that have existed within the Church, you know. So I'm just—I'm trying to figure out, how do you talk to someone about stuff like this and make sense of it? Yeah, sure. I really
2: appreciate the question. Well, of course, the alternative to organized religion is disorganized religion, right? I mean, that, that's <laughs> that's the truth of the matter. And uh, so the the problem that he identifies, of course, is the problem of moral hypocrisy, and that is not unique to Catholicism at all. Um, in fact, I was just reflecting when I saw your call come up. It reminded me of a passage that I read in a famous Buddhist text from around the first century AD called the Dhammapada. It's one of the most famous texts of Theravada Buddhism. And, uh, and I, I looked it up while I was waiting for your, for your call. Um, and, uh, and the text is uh, as follows. Whoever being depraved, devoid of self-control and truthfulness, should don the monk's yellow robe. He is surely not worthy of the robe. There are many evil characters and uncontrolled men wearing the saffron robe. These wicked men will be born in states of woe because of their evil deeds. Oh, right? my. So here's a here's a testimony to religious hypocrisy from first-century uh, Indian Buddhism, right? I mean, that's, you, you, you're never going to get away from this problem, and, and you'll find it in any religious community. You find mm-hmm. it in the Jewish community, the Islamic community, the Christian community, the Protestant community. Moreover, you're going to find it in the community of people who declare themselves to be spiritual but not religious. Right? All of these, uh, of these you know, self-righteous individualists who disdain the value of organized religion are themselves religious hypocrites, or at least have the capacity to fall into that. Not, not least the, the hypocritical stance of being judgmental and taking the speck out of their brother's eye when they have a log in their own. So it's just, you know, all of us are hypocrites to a certain extent or another if we aspire to improve our lot. If you believe that moral progress is possible, then by definition you're aiming for a target that you have not yet reached. You're advocating values that you haven't been able to fully incorporate into your life, i.e., we're all hypocrites at one level yeah. or another. Yeah. Okay? But when it comes to the Christian tradition in particular, this kind of claim uh, is uh, really makes mincemeat of the teaching of the New Testament, because emphatically the New Testament calls us to a corporate form of life. Uh, St. Paul it may, it gives the only explicit instructions on Christian worship in, in, in Sacred Scripture and tells us explicitly that it is around the sacrament of the Eucharist that we gather, that it, those of us who partake of the one loaf become one body. And the duties of the Christian—you uh, you could you could summarize Pauline ethics into two categories, sexual purity and social justice towards members of the Christian community. Almost every moral injunction that Paul gives reduces to one of those two. Mm. Maintain your sexual lives with purity and and provide material support for the poor, especially within the Christian community, right? But that presupposes that you're part of a Christian community towards which you can do justice, which is what led Pope Benedict to make the claim in his encyclical on the love of God that the Eucharist that, that does not eventuate into concrete acts of charity is intrinsically fractured. Right? why, Why the book of Hebrews says that we should not neglect the 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 gathering of ourselves together. The the corporate element of Christian life is essential to Christian identity. The idea of a lone ranger Christian is antithetical to what it means to be a Christian, which is to imitate the charity of Christ. Imagine if Jesus had said well, you know, I don't, I don't need any organized religion. I'm, I, it's just my, my own personal relationship to God. I mean, the ministry of Jesus becomes unintelligible. Yeah. Yeah. The ministry of Christ was all about serving God by serving his neighbor, by, by performing corporal and spiritual acts of mercy towards others, and calling us to do likewise. You cannot live the Christian life without other people to do good to. And that's what the Christian church primarily exists for. St. Augustine said the reason Christ gave us a church was so that we would have people to do good to.
1: Yeah. Well, we hope that's helpful for you, Marcy. Thanks so much for your call today. Call to communion here on EWTN. Uh, last call for your call, and that's 833. 833- 288-EWTN. If you call right now, we can hopefully get you on today's program, 833-288-3986. April is the first-time caller from Harrisburg, PA, listening on the great Holy Family Radio. April, what's on your mind today?
0: Yes, I just have a question about the name Catholic. Um, what is its origin and why? Why the name Catholic and not Christian or something, or Church of Christ, or something
1: like that.
2: Okay. Yes, thank you. I really appreciate the question. So the the word Catholic was first used in the very early 2nd century by a bishop, a bishop from Antioch named Ignatius of Antioch, and the word Catholic, uh, Catholicos in Greek, means universal. So you know, the Church as it is throughout the whole world, basically. Now, while you won't find the word Catholic in Scripture, you find the concept of universality all over the New Testament. So in Matthew 28, for example, when Jesus sends out the 11, he says, Go into all nations. Go into all nations. Make disciples uh, teaching them everything I have commanded you and baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the universal scope of the, of the apostolic mission to all the corners of the earth. Mm-hmm. You move on into the book of Acts, and the whole narrative of Acts is about the spread of the gospel from Jerusalem to the nations. And it's, it's, it's evident from the text that as the message about Christ is spreading and the apostles are appointing priests in the communities that they have founded, as we read in Acts 14, that those communities that they establish are part of a singular organization. Like, they're they're not, you know, a bunch of singleton congregations with no connection to one another. They're all part of one Christian movement, which is why in Acts chapter 15, you can see representatives from the whole Christian world coming together in a council to decide a matter of controversy and then to impose... Their decisions upon Christians everywhere throughout the world. The idea that there's one organizational structure, governed by the apostles, that uh, that has jurisdiction over Christians wherever they might be in the world. That's what the concept of catholicity means. And as that as that developed throughout history, it would be it would be signaled by practices like. Now, intercommunion between churches. So, you know, the church in Corinth and the church in Rome would send representatives and 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 uh, and uh, and actually bear the blessed sacrament to one another as a testimony of their Christian unity. Jesus talks about the church as a as a visible body that you can be admitted to and excluded from. So, in Matthew chapter eighteen, he says, if somebody is in sin, you know, you you kick them out of the church and treat them like a tax collector and a sinner. Well, you can't kick someone out of an organization that that doesn't have a visible uh, instantiation, right? And so that that one Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church is something you can either be in or out of. It's not just about your personal relationship to Jesus. It's about being part of a community that Christ founded. And of course, uh, uh, the the bishops and the apostles of the Catholic Church were conscious that there were people who had gone out from that Catholic unity. Those that were in, those that were without. Uh-huh. Saint John writes in his epistle that uh, you know these folks went out from us, showing that they weren't really part of us. They're a new group now, and so the bishop said, "Well, you know, we need to we need to be able to differentiate between those that hold the faith of the apostles and those that are innovators, you know, heretics, you might say, and uh, and and so you know, Catholic became not only a term that indicated the universal scope of the Christian Church, but also began to differentiate those that were of the apostolic party, Uh you know, the Orthodox, from innovators that taught a novel doctrine,
1: i.e. heretics. Yeah, okay. Uh, April, is that helpful for you? Yes, thank you. Appreciate your call. It is called a communion here on EWTN. This weekend, be sure to join us for Stories from the Heart with our friend Sandra McDevitt. That's coming up Sunday morning at 9.15 a.m. Eastern, right after the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. This Sunday, Sandra tells the story about the storm of 1900 in Galveston, Texas. You know, they are still talking about that storm in Galveston. Also, 10 nuns and their sacrifice. Again, that's coming up Sunday morning, 9.15 a.m. Eastern, right here and only here on EWTN Radio. Well, we were talking about Epiphany earlier in the program, and Stephen watching us on YouTube this afternoon says, I live in Louisiana where Mardi Gras is about to begin, after Epiphany, I know this isn't celebrated in most other places. My question is: Does Mardi Gras or Fat Tuesday, if you will, have any Catholic roots at all? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. So um, there, there was a, a
2: custom in um, medieval Christianity called Carnival that would atten- that would happen during Shrove Tide or after, you know Shrove Tuesday. Yes, um, that uh, it was characterized by all kinds of uh, raucous you know, carrying on. Frivolity. Frivolity. And uh, and there were a lot of traditions that emerged in the late Middle Ages, like um, um, kind of a reversal of social roles where, uh, you know, where people from the lower classes would, would dress up as bishops and clerics, and, and, <laughs> and you know, bishops and clerics would, would, you know, kind of get put in the dunking booth, as it were, that sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, you can find there's a lot of Renaissance artwork that depicts scenes from, uh, from uh, from Carnival, there's one by uh, Peter Brueger, the Elder, uh, famous painting, the fight between Carnival and Lent. You know, um, wow. so uh, and you'll find it parodied in in um, like Erasmus's uh, in Praise of Folly, or or uh, or um, in Rabelais, Pantagruel, and Gargantuan. Those, those kind of Renaissance farces would would make much of this kind of thing. Mm,
1: fascinating. Appreciate that, uh, Stephen. Thanks for checking in from Louisiana itself. Uh, Phone lines are open at 833-288-EWTN. Last call, 833-288-3986. Here's a question now from Matt, who says, Hello, Dr. Anders. Many non-Christians challenge the gospel narratives due to various assertions from Christ that Judgment Day will happen within the lifetime of the apostles. One example would be from Matthew 16, verses 27 and 28. For the Son of Man will come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay everyone according to what has been done. Amen, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Quote. There are other examples of Christ explaining that the Son of Man will come in the glory of the Father with his angels as well, which seems to be within the current generation or at least extremely soon. These so-called failed prophecies are used as evidence to show that the Gospels are unreliable, or even worse, that Christianity itself is false. How do we respond to these verses in Scripture? Thanks so much, Matt.
2: Yeah, thanks. I'm very much aware of this argument, and I've read a lot of the polemics around that. And so, traditionally, the way the Christian Church would respond to that is to say, that Jesus' contemporaries had a very realized eschatology, a view of the kingdom of God coming in, um, uh, you know, a kind of political might that would be visible. Uh, and, and even within the New Testament itself, we, we definitely see signs of Jesus moving people's expectations away from that kind of realized eschatology, like Luke chapter 17 when he says, Don't say... Uh, you know, where is the kingdom? Is it here or is it there? For I tell you that the kingdom of God is within you. And um, uh, and, and when Christ ascended into heaven, you remember the the disciples, when they saw him before he ascends, the first thing they say to him, or the last thing I should say, is, uh, will you now at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Right? See, they're looking for a restoration of the political boundaries of the Davidic-Solomonic empire. That's their expectation. But again, Christ had given this uh, had already begun to alter their expectations with, don't say, here it is, there it is, for the kingdom of God is within you. And, uh, and, and that uh, there was an imminent arrival of Christ's kingdom uh, in the foundation of the church and the outpouring of the spirit of Pentecost. Uh, but of course, we do look for the culmination of that in the second coming of Christ at the end of time in glory.
1: All right, and Matt, thanks so much for your email. Jane's watching us on YouTube right now. Jane says, "Is it okay to clap in church?"
2: Um, yeah, it is, but um, you know, uh, within measure. Now, there's there's nothing in the rubrics that, at least, not in the traditional Latin rite. I'm not so sure about the the um, Zairean use mm-hmm. right. Maybe there is clapping in there, but in the in the traditional Roman right, there's no rubric that calls for clapping, um, and so we're very, very conscious of the fact that. You know, we want to follow the rubrics, and the church specifies the kind of behavior that we need to that we need to perform. Doesn't mean that you can never do something that isn't indicated in the rubrics. Uh-huh. Um, but um, uh, you know, a sort of a spontaneous eruption of uh, of enthusiasm uh, is not always an appropriate. But it could be, depending on context and prudence, sure. and pastoral judgment would obviously have to come into
1: play. Appreciate that, uh, Jane. Thanks for watching us on YouTube this afternoon. Robert sent in this question on your program of December 11th. You discussed the sacraments, of, of, a sacrament of penance. You stated that if the confessor did not say the proper words of absolution, then the sins were not forgiven. Well, this begs the question, what is the state of the penitent? Suppose a mortal sin had been confessed. Um,
2: right. So you have to distinguish between the question of the validity of the sacrament on the one hand and God's willingness to extend grace on the other. So... Uh, God of course is not bound by sacraments.
1: Sure. We are. He's yeah. not. Yeah, yeah.
2: And the church teaches that God extends the grace necessary for salvation to every living soul whether or not they are in the sacraments of the catholic church and makes it possible for all people to be saved. And so uh, there, you know there is a there is an assumption that if a person uh, attempts to realize a sacrament in good faith, good will with the proper disposition and the sacrament is, is invalid, for some reason that is not the penitent's fault, we would never draw the judgment that person did not receive any grace at all, but we would have to draw the judgment that that person could have received grace in some way exterior to the sacrament itself. The sacrament itself would not have given grace ex opere operato automatically by the working of the work, which is what all sacraments validly celebrated do. But we would not be able to conclude, well, you know, God didn't offer that person any grace. You know, God very well can offer a person grace even when there's not a valid sacrament, just like he offers, you know, if I am out, out in the middle of the desert and there's no priest for miles, uh, I can make an act of perfect contrition, and I, can, and I can receive grace even though there's no sacrament there. And uh, we don't presume, we never presume but we, we, but neither can we conclude there is no grace present um, when the when a person is you know and also you know if you make an act of contrition in in the sacrament of penance the the standard formula is you know my God I'm heartily sorry for having offended you and doing in choosing to do wrong and failing to do good of mm. too good I have sinned against you whom I should love above all things now if that's your disposition that in itself is an act of perfect contrition.
1: Sure is. Robert, thanks so much for your email. Mike sent in this question. This is a little complicated here. What is the experience of heaven? Is there a schedule with obligations and activity, or is it just pure existence? Also, is there dimensionality and form, or just a sort of energy with awareness? Thanks, Mike.
2: Um, Yeah, thanks. So we have to draw some distinctions. We have to distinguish between The experience of the just before the second coming of Christ and the experience of the just after the second coming, before the second coming of Christ, uh, the souls of the just exist in a disembodied state. They don't have bodies, and therefore they have no extension in space, you know, dimensionality, as you put it. They have no quantitative extension. Um, And their experience of uh, of the beatific vision is spiritual. That is to say, they have an immediate intuitive knowledge of God and his essence that is utterly satisfying. And... And, uh, and blissful. Uh, once we have the resurrection of the body, those souls are reunited with the physical body, and so they now have dimensionality. They have quantitative extension. They have motion. Um, and uh, we have a, a renewed heavens and the earth. What will you do with that resurrected body in the next life? I don't have a clue. <laughs> I mean, Scripture speaks to that, but it seems to speak in such a highly symbolic and figurative way that I don't think we could draw any definitive conclusions.
1: Okay, well, that's where we have to leave that. It's called a communion here on EWTN. Um, looks like Ms is watching us on YouTube today. Ms says, if there is extensive evidence or reasons that a marriage is invalid, can a priest or canon lawyer say that a marriage is invalid without the declaration of nullity process?
2: No, no. You have you have to go through the marriage tribunal. Uh, your parish priest cannot issue a, a declaration of nullity. It has to go through the proper channels. Hey, you know what? I was We had a call a minute ago about clapping in the Mass. Yes, yes. And I, I made a reference to the to the Latin rite in the Zairean use. And I just a little research, and in yeah. fact, I confirmed there is clapping specified in the Zairean use of the Roman rite, mm.
1: which is approved by the Vatican. Fascinating. I know that uh, sometimes when there is a big mass uh, where there's lots of musical instruments or perhaps a fabulous uh, organ postlude or something like that, some people will find themselves applauding. Some musicians think that's perfectly fine. Other musicians, they're like, they, they hate right. that, hate that's it. right. Fascinating.
2: Oh, you know what? I, I want to say one other thing about the, the nullity issue. Yes, right. yes. The, this person wanted to know if you could bypass the whole... Marriage tribunal and just get a you know get a summary judgment as it were by a canon lawyer. I need to qualify my answer. I said no. Your your parish priest can't just issue a declaration of nullity. You got to go through the proper channel. In most dioceses, there is a distinct formula, a distinct process for um, marriages that are invalid from defect of form. Oh, all right. So if if the impediment is a defect of form which is to say a Catholic marrying outside the Catholic Church. Generally, there is a streamlined process. In some dioceses, you might go to their websites, for example, and they just have a link that says, Defect to form? Click here. You know, you fill out the requisite data, and, you know, bam, off you go. And it's usually, you know, like it's a no-brainer decision. You still have to go through the proper channels, but there's a streamlined process. If the uh, the impediment is something like... um, you know, uh, a psychological incapacity, then that's what requires all the detailed documentation. really kind of depends on what the grounds are for the Declaration of nullity.
1: Very good. Thanks for clarifying that. Uh, Alan says, I am in dialogue with a dear Calvinist friend of mine. He says he can see my points when it comes to Scripture interpretation, but that his theology doesn't allow him to agree. How can I break through this barrier? Sounds to me like... He is committed to a tradition
2: of interpretation uh-huh. rather than to uh, the principle of sola scriptura that he that he advocates. Mm. I mean, by his own by his own admission, within the Calvinist schema, the highest authority is the Bible itself. Now, Catholics don't think that, mm-hmm. but, but Calvinists do. Not Calvinist tradition. The Calvinist tradition is not the final authority for Calvinists. So, which is it, Bud? <laughs> Is it, is it the Bible, or is it your adherence to Calvinist tradition, to Calvinist dogma? What is the status of Calvinist dogma in your own act of faith? Do you, is that, does that have ultimate sway, or would you be willing to dissent from Calvinist dogma in the interests of pursuit
1: of the truth? Can't sit on the fence. All right. And uh, this question here from Kent. In John 1925, it says that Mary, the mother of Jesus, has a sister called Mary. Was that common to name siblings the same name? Cousin cousin. A cousin.
2: Our sister here, but elsewhere we learn that it's actually a, it's a cousin, it's a relative, it's not a biological sibling.
1: Very good. And this one uh, from Paula, how does God determine who goes to heaven and why? Do I really need to be doing all the good things that I do, or would he just forgive me and let me into heaven without those actions?
2: Okay, thanks. So let me, let me back up from this question a little bit and talk about the nature of heaven, the nature of relationship with God, the nature of salvation. Um, and I'm going to liken it, as Scripture itself does, to the relationship of marriage. And what what would it mean to you to have a good marriage? Wouldn't it be a marriage in which the spouses loved and cared for one another and had a kind of uh, in, intimate, reciprocal union where, you know, where I am seeking the good of my partner and my spouse is seeking my good and her interests, I've taken on as my own, and vice versa. And there's a real empathy and a sharing of souls and an intimacy there, right? And, and I, if I said to you, "Well, you know, I, I want to be married, you know, and I want to have a good marriage, but I don't want to mess with all that loving my wife stuff," <laughs> right? I, I just, I just want to have all the goods without that. You'd good be luck. like You'd be like, that's sort of like asking for a good meal without bothering the taste buds, you know? Like you, you, it's. Yeah. I don't think you know what it means to have a good—what other kind of good are you looking for? Like, that is the good of marriage. The good of marriage is, just is, that the reciprocal, mutual, beneficial, positive regard and reliance and trust, all those things just are what it means to have a good marriage. Sure. You can't have that without—in the same way, salvation in the Catholic Church just means having that kind of uh, nuptial love for God. That's what heaven is, and heaven begins in this life. So you, you, you can't have union with God without the concrete love of God in your soul, which just is the condition of eternal life. Eternal life is the reward of eternal life begun in this life.
1: Yes, indeed. Paula, thanks so much for your email. Dr. David Anders, thank you. Thanks, Tom. Appreciate all that you do for EWTN and for our many, many listeners all over the world. We do this program Monday through Friday, 2 p.m. Eastern. Check out uh, the podcast by going to EWTN.com forward slash radio. Look for the words podcast central. And there you go. On behalf of our fantastic team, I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. Thanks for joining us. See you tomorrow on the Friday edition of Call to Communion. Until then, have a great day. God bless.